A few weeks ago, I sat down with Bhavya Yananapudi, a junior at PHS, who despite only moving to Princeton in the ninth grade, has managed to become involved with Model UN, the track and field team, Science Olympiad, high-level karate, the local government, and surely other cool organizations I didn't manage to ask her about. Over the course of our conversation, I hope that you find a larger story woven through our questions and anecdotes and tangents. I think Bavia talks not just about how she's been quote-unquote successful when it comes to finding her place at PHS, but also about how we can all make sure that we're creating environments where new people and novel ideas alike are welcome. I'm Alexander Margulis, and you're listening to PHS Talks. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I guess the main thing I want to talk about today is uh, how you found your footing at PHS and how others can do the same. As someone who moved from Fayetteville, Arkansas to Princeton in late 2019, I know how weird and disorienting a move like that can be. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we'll get into Model UN and track and your thoughts on governments and environmental policy in a second. But I want to start with this question. Uh, What was Michigan like and how was coming from Michigan to PHS and Princeton for you? Okay, so Michigan is a really, really big state. I feel like people try to group the Midwest into like one giant region, but it's not really like that. Michigan has more people than New Jersey, I think, um, which is something I don't think most people know. And also the state differs very greatly on like where in the mitten you live. Uh, For those who don't know, the mitten is just like the lower peninsula. And then the upper peninsula is like the part above that. And people from there are called Ubers. And then the people from the lower peninsula are called the Trolls because they live underneath the Mackinac Bridge. Yeah, some Michigan trivia for you guys. So I happen to be a troll from the Lower Peninsula. And the area in which I lived was pretty diverse, I'd say. Um, It was like half Asian. Well, diverse in the sense it was half Asian, half white. There weren't any other like groups of people besides that. But it was also kind of separated, I'd say. I feel like this would be hard for people who are not from there to understand. Yeah, definitely. I, I guess just to contextualize it, what was it like starting your freshman year at PHS? What did that feel like having, yeah, you know, okay. moved from somewhere else? And, cool. and how was it different from the experience you'd had in Michigan? Well, I was really excited for my orientation day. I was like thrilled. It was kind of all I thought about for like weeks because when I moved, well, A, it was during COVID. And also I didn't know anybody at all. So I didn't really have anything to do besides just like stay at home all day. I was really looking forward to orientation. But when I got there, It was terrifying. There was so many people and I didn't recognize like a single person. And that's like not something I think happens a lot to me. Like how many other times in your life are you in like surrounded by like hundreds of people who you've never met before and you're expected to be like friends with them, but it's hard to start conversations because everyone around you is already talking to people that they know. But I think I just, you make like a friend at a time, right? If you make one friend, then that friend introduced you to their friends. And then over time, like, you know so many more people. And I think a thing that helped me a lot is just trying to be as outgoing as possible, which, like, obviously you can't maintain that forever. But if you just open and, like, get people or let people get to know you, then it's easier to find your place. And another thing is I tried to sort of replicate what my life used to be like. Obviously, it can't be perfect but I did things that I used to do like Maluen and track I even tried some new things like science olympiad at my old school is super competitive and I'd never have a chance on the science olympiad team but um I gave it a shot in my freshman year and now I do that too so 
Yeah, that's really fun. Uh, maybe we'll we'll chart the progress from you know feeling so disoriented at yeah. orientation paradoxically to <laughs> uh, becoming uh, more of a part of the school community. Let's start with track. So okay. you approach track uh, in in terms of it as a sport from a slightly unique angle. Tell me a little about your history with karate and yeah. how it maybe influences the way you're able to train for track. So I started I started karate unofficially in like first grade. I'd say my dad used to do karate, so he would have me and my younger brother like practice punching pillows like from the ripe age of like six and four and it became like a thing that our family values a lot it's like not even a sport in my family it's all about um discipline and respect and honor um even though there's like obviously physical ability you need to you need to be strong and flexible and all that um it's more just dedication like pure dedication and i'd say it's not really like a sport to me it's like a at the risk of sounding like really corny it's like a lifestyle I'm not even joking um I mean technically you could say that my parents forced me into it but at some point actually this is a pretty funny story my brother started karate long before me even though he's younger than me by two years because he was like definitely into like oh I want to fight people and stuff like that but I watched all of his classes every single day like I just went to his class and sat and watched every single class for two years before I joined like I think that sounds insane to somebody else who's like listening. I, all I did was just sit and watch my younger brother's lessons pretty much. Um, I think it was like twice or thrice a week. I would just like come and sit there for like two hours and watch. But I wasn't really sure if I wanted to join or not. I was like, I don't know if I'm really into this. I did a bunch of other sports. I did obviously running, um, swimming and gymnastics. But I was so for some reason, like karate was a little more scarier to join. But once I did do it, after watching for so many months, I ended up being really good at it. So I kept doing it. As opposed to something like, uh, you know, gymnastics or running, karate seems like a little less of a team sport. Are there a lot of kids at PHS that do karate? Do you still get like a community aspect out of the activity? I don't know anyone at PHS who does karate. I know people who do Taekwondo, but I don't know anyone else who does karate, which is a little interesting, I think. I mean, karate and taekwondo are not the same thing. Taekwondo is Korean and karate is Japanese. But, you know, they're both martial arts. They have very similar, like, blocks and kicks. I would say that gymnastics and running are both individual sports, just like karate. But I think karate is just less popular. So in, in order to find other people at PHS to do a sport with, track seems like the obvious option. Yeah. Uh, what's your distance for track? Okay, this is some interesting um, news. So when I started track, I thought I was a sprinter and I did 100 meters and 200 meters and I was not good at it at all. Like my times didn't improve and they were like way slower than all my other friends. And I was like, why am I so bad at this? And then one day in freshman year, my coach, it was a Friday. I remember we were all in the weight room and me and like other freshman girls were talking to our coach. And he was like, by the way, you guys are all running the four by four on Monday. And if you're not a runner, the 400 is one lap around the track. Um, it's not a lot for distance runners. Distance runners are like, oh, that's so easy. But for sprinters, like that seems like a nightmare. And so we were all like, no, no way. And I happened to be the last one to get to the meet on the day that we had meet. And everyone was like, oh, by the way, you're running the anchor. And the anchor is the person who's supposed to be the fastest. And they go at the end and like they make up the most time. And so 
it happened at the very, very end of the meet. Um, us sprinters had not prepared for this 400. Um, and also we were all really nervous. And when you're nervous, you don't run as well. Like it's harder to breathe, like you don't, it's better to run when you're relaxed. And the distance team smoked us. Uh, we were much, much behind them. And then once we had finished, I remember I was the last, like, keep in mind, this is like the last event. And also we were having a pizza party after this. So everyone was waiting for this like last event to finish. And I was the last runner. And so when I crossed the finish line, everyone was looking at me. And the second I crossed the finish line, I like almost fainted. And then I remember one of my friends, um, she told me like months later, like, oh, the first time I really remembered you was that time you almost fainted. And I was like, yeah, that's not embarrassing at all. Um, that race was one of the most scariest things of my entire life. Like I legitimately thought I was going to die on that last curve, um, which is crazy because I've run so many 400 since then. But something like that, that makes you so scared. It took a long time to overcome that fear. And every time I have to run the 400 since then, I'm like, oh, but what if on that last curve, I really do faint this time. And then my head hits the track and then I'm dead. Like those are the thoughts that go through your mind when you are anxious about something and it's important to note that like that's the whole point of training like the whole point of training is to make those like scary thoughts get quieter because you're like no I believe in myself and I can do this yeah but besides from just being anxiety inducing yeah. track is like hard and grueling <laughs> I guess what, what I'm wondering is why do it in the first place is it about finding that community at PHS that's a really good question. I think it depends on the person. Um, well, there's some people who do it for like aesthetic purposes. Like they want to feel faster. They want to feel stronger. And I feel like all of us on the team feel that in a certain way. Like we want to see our times go down. We want to feel better. But then there's also people like, I don't think I joined track especially to make friends. But one of the reasons why I still do track is because of my friends. And um, yeah, it's like, because when you join a sports team, you have to spend like a minimum of two hours every day with these people. And like, if you don't like them, then it's going to be terrible. But if you like them, then it's it's not as bad. Like, you can talk to your friends like, oh, what do you think the workout's going to be? Or like, can I borrow your Gatorade? Like, those are like the tiny things that um, help you bond with someone else. One more question about the track team. Mm -hmm. uh, as someone who came into the track team as a freshman, mm -hmm. you know, from another state, and is now an upperclassman, how do you approach the new runners on the team? Okay, I think I want to make sure, I'm a leader of some other clubs and things at the school, and I want to make sure that like no one feels excluded. I think that's something that I, I think that's something that everyone fears, like to feel like you're not wanted uh, somewhere, or like even if you are there, like nobody cares. Like if a new member joins the team, I try my best to like, make them feel like they belong. Because um, when I joined the team, I had like no friends um, who did track. And luckily, like some people slowly opened up. And then once a few people open up, it's easier. Like you get more confidence. You can talk to other people. If there were just someone to join by themselves, I think this is not just for me. I think everyone on the track team would try to make them feel like they belong. As far as I understand, in, is it middle school? Do they call it middle school, junior high? It's middle school, yeah. Okay, they call it junior high in Arkansas. Anyway, uh, yeah. uh, 
in middle school, you were a part of uh, Model UN, yeah? Yeah, I so was. So for listeners who aren't familiar with Model UN, what sure. is it? Okay, so Model UN is a model of the United Nations in like the most general sense, but depending on what committee you're in or what conference you're going to, um, the topic can change completely. So PHS hosts our own uh, conference. It's called FizzMonk. And this was October 28th, I think. And I uh, wrote the back-end guide, which is basically like all the information about the topic for a committee about the 2023 Hollywood strikes, which is pretty interesting. So basically, Model UN is, if I take the same theme of the Hollywood strikes, you'd have a group of actors, a group of writers, a group of background actors, a group of dis- like CEOs. We have the CEO of Disney, we have the CEO of Netflix, and they're trying to solve a problem. This problem is the strikes, and the way they do it is through like making speeches, um, writing solutions, and just generally debating. So it's like a mixture of many different other clubs. Like there's some elements of debate in there, but. So I'd say the difference between Mal Yuan and debate is because they get compared a lot is that Mal Yuan isn't really about debating the other person. It's more about working together to find solutions. So even though it's called Mal Yuan, it doesn't necessarily have to be a model of the UN or yeah. partisan politics. Okay, well, first, let's take a step back. Uh, Mal Yuan has like three major types of committees. You have GA, and that stands for General Assembly. And in order for something to be a General Assembly, it has to be an actual body of the UN. So something like the WHO or um, UNICEF, like those are actual bodies of the UN. Then you have something like the specialized committee, which is what I was talking about, where you play a person, not a country, and it can be about any topic. Um, It's basically a GA, but you play a person and it's more specific, it's specialized. And then finally you have crisis. Crisis is what, um, it's distinctive because it has a front room and a back room. So basically what a front room is, is what the GA and the specialized are all about, where you give speeches to people, you talk, um, it's what everyone can see. And then backroom is notes you send that no one else can see. So it's like a way to accomplish things if you're trying to do something secretive. Let's say you're trying to assassinate the Roman emperor or something, like you do that in backroom. That's super cool. So why did you join MUN uh, in Michigan? Okay, um, I joined MUN because I'm interested in policy, not in like a partisan kind of way, but more in a why do people choose the policies that they do? Like, for example, I'm really interested in like government spending and things like that. Um, it's not something I'd want to go pursue a career in, but it's like something that if I see a news article about like um, what the current state of our budget is, something like that would be interesting to me. And Mal UN is about that, but it's also about working well with other people, um, which is something that I think everyone should learn how to do. Like, people are a collaborative species. Like, we're meant to work with others. And so I think honing your skills in that particular field is super important. Yeah. So when you say as well that you're interested in policy, are you interested in policy we're passing? Are you interested in, you know, creating new pieces of policy or imagining the cause and effects of, of different pieces of legislation? Uh, I think that imagining piece is more of like Mal Yuen. Um, I would say, I don't think you should take Mon super seriously. It's not meant to be taken seriously. But I do, when I'm trying to think of solutions for Mal Yuen, I'm trying to think of myself as an actual person with some legislative power. Although one thing to note is that Mon Yuen, you 
play either a character or a country. And sometimes you're given a character or a country that differs from your personal views. So you really have to like put yourself in that position. So it's not, I think I'm going to lean more towards that imaginative side because obviously sometimes you're placed with countries where you're like, I do not agree with that. But it's kind of like a game um, in a sense. So you just have to go with it. Tell me about your path to Model UN leadership from mm -hmm. the 6th to the 8th grade. Okay, so 6th grade was not good at all in terms of my Model UN career. Um, I think I had good ideas, but I wasn't as assertive with them. And being taken seriously is like a two-way street. First, you need to obviously put your ideas out there, but sometimes those ideas will get rejected. And that might be because your ideas you know, need some work, but it might be sometimes that people aren't taking you seriously. Well, you, if you just stop there, which is what I did in sixth grade, it's like, oh, okay, they're not listening. I guess I'll just tell the person next to me, which is not really gonna do anything. It doesn't matter if the person next to you agrees with you, you need the person in front of you to agree with you. So I think at some certain point, I was like, I kind of got fed up with it. Like, or the leadership that wasn't taking me seriously, they graduated. So I was like, okay, now there's like an open space and I'm going to fix things so that it isn't how it was before. And I want to do something to make it better because I know there's a lot of people who are like me, like didn't feel comfortable voicing their opinions. And that's not okay. I think that a good leader would make it so everyone feels comfortable opening up and not that they just like sit there quiet nodding to what you said. Yeah, definitely. I think this ties back to like the central theme of the episode as well. Cause a lot of times individuals, especially female individuals, mm -hmm. uh, in these sorts of clubs are kind of not listened to or not taken seriously and then yeah. have a harder time finding their footing within the activity. I'm wondering what you think all clubs at PHS, not just the ones you're personally involved with, mm -hmm. uh, need to keep in mind to make sure that that doesn't happen. That's a really good question because I think that this is something super important that people tend to forget. I feel like going back to what you said about especially like people who are femme presenting, um, I know for me it was especially in my voice was even more high-pitched. I don't know, it might be hard to imagine that because it's already super high-pitched, but it was like basically like Minnie Mouse. Just imagine that. And I mean, I used to get called like Barbie a lot because yeah, that's just a thing that happened. And I think what club leaders can do especially is if you notice that there's someone who's like, you, you, know, you can kind of tell when someone has like a look on their face that feels like they want to say something, but they're not saying it. Even teachers can do this, but when you see someone who has that look on their face to be like, do you want to say something? I mean, obviously there's like ways to say this meanly, right? Like, oh, you have that look on your face. You want to say something and shit? Like, that's not what I mean. But I mean, um, if you see someone who looks like they have a good idea and or if they're talking to the people around them, like their friends, it usually means that they feel confident enough to share that with their friends, but they're like not totally ready to say that to everyone. Or, you know, what I, I feel like what I would try to do is I go and talk to that person individually first, because I mean, that shows that as a club leader, you're interested in what they want to say, but you also recognize that they have boundaries right now and you don't want to push them. Everyone has to start somewhere. And I think at first, a leader should go to them directly and talk to them. How do you think uh, the community you found within Model UN at PHS differs from the one that exists in track and field? I'd say they're very different personality types, which is not to say that like I prefer one group of people more than the other, but 
I'd say at track, I'm one of the more outgoing ones, but at MaUN, I'm one of the more quieter ones, which is also kind of like the people who join MaUN are usually more like the most attention-grabbing people, which doesn't matter in track. Like, it doesn't matter if everyone likes you because it doesn't affect how you run. Um, I spend more time with people on the track team because I have to. Like, we have MaUN meetings once a week during lunch. That's not that much time. But track, you know, we go every single day. Um, sometimes we're there with them the entire day because of meets and stuff. And I think you learn to be more open with people you see more often, especially when MaUN is all about appearances, right? You want to appear as knowledgeable as possible. Like you want to be taken seriously. Track, like you're sweating. Um, your clothes are a little, like they're not the same clothes that you wore to school. Your hair is messed up. You can't control any of that and be kind of it'd be a waste of time to try to maintain those appearances around people on a sports team and if you are trying to maintain those appearances then i think probably shouldn't because a whole point of a sports team is to like support each other through the good and the bad times that sounds like a marriage vow but you know yeah that, that's a really nice idea I want to shift gears just a little and talk mm -hmm. about environmental science. Mm -hmm. uh, you've been saying a lot about your love for policymaking and, and policy questions. And, you know, you're the Science Olympiad captain for yeah. environmental science specifically. What are the main takeaways that high schoolers should be aware of? What's important for, you know, the general school population to know about uh, their field? So funny story on how I ended up the Science Olympiad captain. I think I might have been one of the first sophomore captains of Science Olympiad. When I became a captain, I was a sophomore and all the other captains were seniors. I didn't become that because I was just insanely good at Science Olympiad. It was more because I was the only person on the entire team who exclusively did environmental science. I think that for some reason, environmental science isn't taken as seriously as the other sciences. I mean, I kind of get why, because it's like a mix of all the other sciences, like chem, bio, and physics. But I feel like that's really a shame because environmental science is gonna be like the most important field for all of us as we grow older. And um, the t key takeaways, I'd say, environmental science is important. Like, I don't know how else to face that. Um, well, my first experiences with climate change were when I was super, super little. Um, I had a book called like Greenhouse Gases when I was like five-ish. Um, and I read that book a lot. And then every single time we had to write a essay in elementary school, for every single year, I always wrote about about climate change. So much so that my mom like actually wrote a letter to my fifth grade teacher and was like, please don't let Bobby write about this again. Like we wanna know that she can write about something else. Cause I either wrote about like realistic fiction stories or environmental science. I had no other depth. So um, I was always like interested in it. And I think I'm more interested in it out of a place of fear. I think I fear for what the situation will be like if it, it's not given enough attention. I mean, we already see like headlines every single day about the bad stuff that's happening. Are you familiar with like the Japanese concept of ikigai? It's something pretty interesting. It's like how to decide what job you should do or like how to classify between your passion, your mission, your vocation and your profession. So there's like four categories, what you like doing or what you love to do, what are you good at doing and uh, what the world needs, and what can you make a living off of. So for me, something that hits all four categories is environmental science, which is why I take it so seriously. I think 
that out of everything that I'm remotely good at, this is the thing that the world needs the most. Yeah, that's a really beautiful idea. I know we had Mr. Ferguson on the show Mm -hmm. uh, in our first episode, and I don't know if he said anything about it uh, during the podcast, but he's a big believer in, you know, your career is where your passion and and Mm -hmm. what the world needs meets. Uh, And it's super cool that you've managed to turn this kind of scary issue of climate change into something that you're passionate about, something that you see a future in trying to solve. I'm wondering about the other side of the aisle, though, because I know for many kids, including myself to some extent, eco-anxiety is like really big uh, and and really scary. And, you know, when you say, well, this is the job that the world's going to need as we get older, that has like an ominous ring to it. Yeah, no, it does. So uh, how do you think we can deal with eco-anxiety as high schoolers, as someone who spends so much time with environmental science? Well, before I answer, I just want to say I don't have any kind of degree in order to be able Absolutely. To... Don't yeah, worry. Yeah. This, is a, this is a high school newspaper. We're just talking. <laughs> we just... Yeah. Well, your, your perspective, I guess. Not, um, not a definitive answer. It, this is a really complicated issue because, I mean, if you do, like, the math, us as individuals are barely contributing to this. I mean, yeah, we contribute more than the average person in other countries, but really, it's like big companies that are doing this. And I mean, obviously, there's people like Greta Thunberg who like quit school. And I don't think I would encourage that for the vast majority of the population. But I'd say something that we can all do to feel a little less anxious about this is maybe I don't know if most high schoolers read the news every day. I think there was... I've heard from a lot of friends, actually, they used to read the news, but they stopped because it started to feel too overwhelming, which is entirely fair. But I think it's important to stay educated. And also, sometimes the news brings good news. Like, I feel like I'm saying news a lot, but sometimes the news has news of um, scientists making breakthroughs in climate technology. And as students right now, it's our responsibility to become as knowledgeable as possible so that in the future, yeah, we can we can become those scientists who are doing something. But for now, I think the best thing to do is just enjoy our lives. I think, yeah, I mean, we can't really do anything for right now, but. Along those lines, I'm wondering, you know, combining this with, with MUN and the Youth Advisory Committee, which we'll talk about in a second, mm-hmm. uh, foreshadowing. <laughs> How important do you think climate science is as a base, an informational base for policymaking? I in think it's super century, important. I think that's specifically what I want to go into. I think policy is interesting, yeah, but you know, policy becomes very political at some point. I want to focus in how policy can be used specifically with environmental science. Um, billion dollar disasters, for those who might not know, billion dollar disasters are basically natural disasters where the estimated damage is over a billion dollars. I think that this is something that is not as politicized. I think it's very interesting, like how we choose to invest money into building back after disasters. Like, do local governments choose to spend a little bit extra money up front to prevent the billion dollar disasters? Like, if some place is a hurricane prone area, like, do they build higher up houses or maybe levees or something like that? Or do they choose to, you know, build back exactly how it was before? And then the next time, maybe the disaster is not a billion dollars, it's two billion dollars. Yeah, those are really interesting questions. The idea of creating legislation to help combat these problems is a really appealing one. 
and, and a really cool one, but there are a lot of maybe roadblocks, both in terms of getting people excited about these pieces of policy and in terms of uh, actually making them just and moral. I, I mm-hmm. want to talk about both of those questions. The, you can't instill empathy. And I'm not saying that people who don't see this as a problem are unempathetic. I'm, I'm saying that sometimes they might not know. Like, that just might be the answer. Like, they, they don't realize stuff is happening outside of their county. I think sometimes you just end up getting fixed on where you live. Like, I know when I lived in Michigan, I had never heard of Princeton in my entire life until I heard, learned about the Battle of Princeton in eighth grade history. People from Princeton might not understand that, but I think it's very human to not know everything. If anyone knew everything, then they wouldn't be human. They'd be like Superman or actually a better comic book superhero would be like the brain, but I don't know. Um, And the same goes like, likewise, like when I try people in Princeton are like, oh, you're from Michigan. Um, What do you have? Just cars? (laughs) And I'm like, yes, but there's so much more. Like we have beautiful lakes, beautiful beaches. I have never seen a beach better than Lake Michigan's beaches. But when you haven't lived somewhere or seen something um, personally, it's really hard to imagine it. And I think that climate disasters, when you just see a number, like number of people dead or number of people without power, it doesn't mean anything to you. I mean, it might, but to most people, it's like, oh, that's just another news headline. I'm going to scroll past this. So I think uh, going back to what you said, like this is a very slippery slope. Like if we try to explain the extent to which all this bad stuff is happening, we can easily send people to spiral into anxiety and fear. And fear leads to so much worse, um, as I think history proves. The only way to get past this is education, but education from like an unbiased point of view. You don't want to fear monger, but you don't also want to downplay it. Education is super important, but there's also a way in which that education, uh, you know, plays back into the positionality of us as PHS students that maybe has a distancing effect where we can't, you know, imagine what it's like to to live in regions that are, you know, struck by climate disasters uh, more acutely than we are, any more than we can imagine, you know, like living in Michigan or or Arkansas. (laughs) Um, I guess... The, the larger question I want to ask is, do you think it's possible to become too ingrained into the PHS community? Uh, and is there a way in which we can get, you know, stuck shuffling between these clubs and mm-hmm. these classes and not, you know, take a wider perspective? I feel like that's something that affects a lot of high school students, especially. And I think to some degree, like that affects me too. When I'm like, oh, I have Calc homework. Oh, I have chem homework. Oh, I used to like go to track practice and then I have to go to karate and then I have to play the guitar and like all these things that I have to do like completely um, overwhelming my brain. This is a very worst world problem point of view where you're immediately thinking about things that are only affecting you. And to some extent, I think that you are living your life. I find a, a lot of times people are like, they don't want to talk about their problems because they feel like their problems don't mean that much. Like that's not the takeaway. Every emotion that you feel is real to you. Um, like if you're upset that you got a B plus on your math quiz, like you were allowed to be upset about that. But I think what a tradition that my family has is that every single night we watch, or not every single night, but most nights we try to sit down and watch like a late night talk show together. 
this is like a win-win-win. Win because family time. Win because it's something lighthearted and humorous. But also win, you can get, you can learn a lot about the news by watching something like that. And there's different focuses for different people. Like um, certain shows are more about musical guests and things like that. Um, certain shows are more political. But they all have like those three wins. And I think that's something that in my household we do to step outside our worldview a little bit and see things that we normally wouldn't pay attention to. That's really cool. Yeah. And something else that it appears from this conversation you do uh, to get outside the PHS bubble a little is, you know, try to think about policymaking in a vague sense and, and just like using an education to give back to the community around you. Uh, tell me about the Princeton Youth Advisory Committee along those lines. Okay, so the Princeton Youth Advisory Committee is part of the municipal government of Princeton. It's like an official uh, government body and it's formed of 12 high school students, four from each grade, 10 through 12. Yeah, I can do math. Um, we meet once a month, um, officially, and we have subcommittee projects in between those. I think some people may know the Princeton Youth Advisory Committee from like the middle school milestones thing that happened pre-COVID at PMS. And it's been a big adjustment for the Princeton Youth Advisory Committee as a whole after COVID. But um, this year, as like a member of the leadership, the other members and I are really trying hard to like get it back to where it was before COVID. And I think that's an example of like even Mun. Mun's really struggled during COVID in the year immediately after. And same with I think most clubs of the school, they all like had a dip in engagement. And this might ring true for like a lot of club members, but as a leader this year, like it takes a lot more effort to bring things back up to where they used to be. Are there any initiatives that the committee has discussed or that yeah. you've been a part of that you're especially passionate about? One thing that I'm like super duper passionate about is we are working on making a mural out of recycled materials. Like one way to like reduce climate anxiety is to turn being pro-environment into something artistic, like channel all that fear of the unknown and the future. Like we don't know how things are gonna turn out. Um, sometimes I have like doomsday scenarios in my head where I'm like, wow, what if I'll be like struggling for water and we need to like grow sunflower seeds in our basement or something like that. You know, just like thinking about the worst where you can think about the best, like turning water bottle caps into like a beautiful mural of sunrise or sunset, turning something scary into art. I think that'll be amazing. I'm wondering whether getting involved with more and more activities at PHS stretches you too thin or whether they build on each other and what the trade-off is. I was really hoping that this would be the focus of the episode because I, well, another one of my middle school nicknames in addition to Barbie was Miss Perfect, which I think is could not be farther from the truth. I'm usually terrible at everything when I try it for the first time. Like, for example, I play the guitar. The very first time I tried to tune my guitar, I broke the strings. And yeah, if that's not a metaphor for me usually failing when I try something for the first time, I don't know what is. So I think the reason why I try to do all these things that I do is because I genuinely want to do them. I think that's a thing that stops you from being stretched too thin. Because, well, I think 
it's it's obviously a balance. Like we're all human. We can't keep forcing ourselves to try to do as many things as possible. Um, my parents, actually, I think I've talked about my parents a lot in this, but they have a lot of sayings, and one of them is try your best and forget the rest. So for a long time, like that was just my motto. Like I'd give everything my 110%, but you can't give everything 110% if you do six things. That's like 660%. Mm -hmm. um, so there has to be a point where you're like, okay, this is it, I am cutting this. But I don't think I fully learned that yet. I'm definitely working on it. I think for the past year and a half or so, I've actually either had to cut down on things that I was interested in. I used to learn German. I stopped learning German because I was like, I cannot do this anymore. I used to sing. I stopped singing because I didn't have time for it anymore. But sometimes I take little things too seriously. For example, for the Science Olympiad interest meeting, I wanted the slideshow to be as pretty as possible. So I worked on it until 11 p.m. at night, which is obviously something I should not have done because health is wealth and sleep comes before everything else. But Sometimes when you have like a goal in mind, you're like, I need to get this done. And when you have a ton of goals, yeah, those things conflict. But I think the important thing to note is you can prioritize one thing one day and prioritize another thing the other day. It's all like a balancing act, which I sometimes feel like I, I don't think that I'm spreading myself too thin, but I think sometimes I'm like, oh, but if I wasn't doing this, I could be better at that which I try not to think about because I feel like all the things I do make me a well-rounded person. If I was only an athlete, then I think um, I wouldn't get to have conversations like this where I get to talk about all the interesting um, academic things I do. Or if I was only an academic, then I wouldn't have all those lovely endorphins and adrenaline and get to taste Gatorade that's mixed with sweat. Like, it's like all those tiny things about all the things that you do make them all worth it. But I, I guess I'm wondering here whether that can sometimes feel alienating, that drive to do, you know, so many different activities because you love them. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, in, in the effort to make everything in those activities perfect, the activities can kind of start to lose their luster in a way. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering whether you found, as I have, that in order for an activity to be as you know perfect as you want it to be, you have to find a community of other people within mm -hmm. that space. It, it, has that been true for you? That's a good question because very recently my brother quit karate, which has affected me a little bit because like I said, this is something we've been doing since we were like six and four. And after I quit, my karate teachers kept like reminding me like, hey, you need to find someone else to do this with you. And they were like, when a sibling quits, historically, the other sibling quits as well. And I really don't want that to happen to me. Um, actually, I quit in elementary school because my brother quit. So this is like round two. And I think it's testing if I've changed since last time. Like, am I still prepared to do this without like my really good friend, my brother with me? And yeah, it's sometimes easier to have like a community of people or for my case, one person doing something with me. But I think motivation should come from within. It shouldn't be that someone else is forcing you to do something or you're only doing this because your friends are doing it. A lot of times people ask me, why do track specifically? Well, sometimes I say it's because I love the people. And yeah, it is because I love the people, but it's also because I like how I feel afterwards, like how I feel as an individual. So I strongly believe that you should do something because you want to.
even if you had to like wake up every single day at 5 a.m. to do this, and no one else was doing it with you, you're doing it all in the dark. Well, I can't, I guess you can't do something in the dark, but like you're doing it all by yourself, would you still want to do it? And I think for me, yeah, I would still want to do track. I, I like to run. I would still want to do karate. I love karate. And I would still love to do science Olympiad and Mayu. Well, Mayu would be the impossible to do by yourself. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be an easy best delegate win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I imagine. That is, you know, in one way, a really nice place to end. Mm -hmm. uh, but I want to examine kind of an unspoken half of that argument. Mm -hmm. So a lot of kids, I imagine, will look at your extracurricular list and look at everything you do and go, oh, well, she's doing it to get into college, yeah, right? Yeah. So what do you think, is there, is there a problem with, you know, how much the environment at PHS stresses, you know, doing these extracurriculars as a way into college? And, and how do you think maybe that attitude can be changed? Um, I think that the argument that I'm doing things for college is pretty wrong because, well, I'm the eldest child in my family, right? So my parents didn't have any kind of example before me. Um, and for most of my life, like, they never forced me to do anything. It was like, are you interested in this? Then we'll do it. Um, they, I mean, they tolerated me watching every single class of my younger brothers for karate for two straight years without, like, being like, Hey, do you want to do you want to go do this? They just like let me sit and watch and wait, and I think that okay. If I were to sum it up in one sentence, I'd say that doing something for college is not a valid reason to do something, but doing something for college is doing something for college can be a reason why you still do it. Like it shouldn't be the reason why you start something, but once you're already doing it, continuing to do it having that be one of the reasons why you continue to do it is fine. Because most of the time, when I hear people say, oh, I'm only do doing this for college. And yes, people have said that explicitly to me, especially about Science Olympiad for some reason. Like, they're like, I'm only doing this for college. And I'm like, why would you tell me that? Because <laughs> um, I think that shows that you have no passion in it and no interest in it. And, and also about what you were saying about... Um, like it losing its luster. I think that only happens if you're in it for like some external reason. I think that happens a lot with, um, I think a lot of the time when I hear people get demotivated about something, it's usually because they started it, not because they wanted to, but because their parents used to push them into doing it. And I don't think that was my case at all. Just just to close it out here, in, in a sort of cheesy, cheesy way, but you know, we always end these episodes on a cheesy note. Mm -hmm you're kind of a testament to the fact that you know following what you love means that you you will be able to find your place whether you're you're in Michigan or you're here right mm -hmm. so I guess I'd wonder what your advice is maybe for for incoming PHS freshmen who are less sure than you about what they love and less sure about you know which extracurriculars they want to jump into how do you think you find that part of yourself well I think one thing is I definitely was not sure of what I wanted to do. Um, I was, I thought I was going to be like a political science major or something because um, I thought that was what I was interested in. But I think the important thing about high school is it's where you get to decide what you, what things make you happy. You don't need to decide what will become your career because 
most of the time, like for example, last year's career fair, the biggest takeaway I got from that was every single person who came to speak did not, like what their job currently was had nothing to do with what they majored in college. So I think your interest will definitely change uh, throughout your four years of high school. Like these are like probably the four most influential years of your life. I think that a lot of people, especially incoming freshmen, or anyone who's coming new to the school, like whether that be freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, senior year, um, is that sign up for anything that like remotely interests you. And then once you find like a little bit of interest in it, the things that you keep coming back to are the things you realize you like the most. Um, like I said, I tried, I tried learning German for a while, but if it was something that I was really passionate about, I would have... I would have stopped playing guitar or something to make time for it. Yeah, I think that if something is really important to you, you'll find that subconsciously you're drawn to it more. Like, in order to do track, you need to come every single day. If I didn't like track, I don't think I'd come every single day. I think that maybe I could keep that up for two weeks, but then once it got to like the one year mark, I might've been like, all right, now enough is enough. And you wouldn't be able to keep it up forever. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. PHS Talks is a part of the multimedia section of The Tower, Princeton High School's student-run newspaper. It is written, produced, and edited by me, Alexander Margulis, with music by Otto Truman. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.